The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. It's the beginning of the end for Trump. This is Thursday, August 23rd, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Those of us who covered Richard Nixon's Watergate scandal and those of us who just remember it know that this is how the end begins. The President of the United States allegedly directed someone to break the law, which is a serious crime. Donald Trump has now been implicated in two serious federal felonies named as an unindicted co-conspirator along with Trump's company and the publisher of the National Enquirer, David Pecker, and his company AMI. It won't likely lead to criminal charges against a sitting president. But quoting a former Bush Justice Department official, it certainly gives the Democrats, should they win the House, a serious piece of evidence to enter into articles of impeachment. Trump is clueless, telling a Fox interviewer, why would you impeach somebody who's doing a good job? That aired this morning. Trump was up past midnight tweeting again about the witch hunt, again claiming no collusion. A former official of the Trump White House tells Politico that under pressure, it's very likely Trump will do something erratic that could make a bad situation worse. A former Trump campaign official says Trump's current aides and advisors are also worried about what Trump might do, so they've tried to keep him busy. They've set up campaign trips to the Trump-friendly states of Nevada, Kentucky, Missouri, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Tennessee. The main strategy, says the source, is to minimize the amount of self-harm the president is doing. The busier he is, the less likely he's going to get in these moods and get more and more angry, end quote. The man you just heard described is the President of the United States, of whom a former White House official says could do something erratic as the threat of his impeachment becomes very, very real. It was late in the Tuesday lunch hour on the West Coast this week and near the close of business back east that became what's likely to be the second worst hour of Trump's presidency. His former lawyer and his campaign manager at a crucial time in his campaign are now both guilty of felonies. And that former lawyer, Michael Cohen, told a judge under oath that the now president directed him to knowingly break the law with hush money payments to women for the success of Trump's presidential campaign. Trump, again clueless, told that Fox interviewer no laws were broken because the money didn't come from his campaign fund. Quoting Trump, unwittingly confessing to a felony, I paid it. Cohen's guilty plea, and in the plea agreement he reached with federal prosecutors in New York, you'll find the phrases in coordination and at the direction of. That makes the president, like his predecessor Richard Nixon, an unindicted co-conspirator. Because Michael Cohen doesn't want to leave his young family for a long prison sentence, he's hoping to get a big reduction on the five years and three months he's now facing. Cohen hasn't yet on paper agreed to cooperate with prosecutors, so there's no deal yet. But through his lawyer, Cohen says he would be willing to talk with investigators from Robert Mueller's special counsel team and that he could tell them things they would like to know. Davis suggests Cohen can testify that Trump knew about the Russian hacking effort before it happened. Trump tweeted Cohen is making up stories to get a deal in a case that Trump says has nothing to do with him. If Paul Manafort ever thought about flipping, this is the time, and he probably is. 
As Trump's unpaid volunteer campaign manager in the most crucial months of the 2016 campaign, Manafort is hoping for a pardon from a president who calls him a good person. But from all accounts, in and outside of the White House, that pardon will never come. In the same afternoon hour on Tuesday in which Michael Cohen pleaded guilty and implicated the president, Paul Manafort was convicted on eight counts of fraud and now goes on to a second federal trial for other crimes. A member of the jury says that had it not been for one holdout on the jury, Manafort would have been convicted of all 18 of the counts against him. Looking at anywhere from seven years to life in prison, this would be a really good time for Manafort to flip as his own lawyers are probably telling him. Manafort still has that second trial next month, and the prosecution's offered more than a thousand pieces of evidence against him. With Michael Cohen ready to sing, anything Manafort has to offer in exchange for a lighter prison sentence becomes a little less valuable to prosecutors. Time's running out. Tick tock. With the Manafort jury at home over the weekend, Trump spoke and tweeted furiously against the prosecutors and repeatedly in favor of his former campaign manager. So what happens now? Although it's not totally out of the question, the consensus is that a sitting president cannot be indicted while in office. That's still being debated. He or she can be indicted the minute they leave office, and that seems increasingly likely. The consensus is that the remedy, according to the Constitution, is impeachment, which also seems likely if Democrats, as expected, sweep the House and make gains in the Senate in the midterm election that is now just weeks away. There is, however, also the possibility that a Republican Congress so far unswayed by Trump's words and deeds could see the mounting case against the president, and should that case become overwhelming, they could decide to land on what would appear to be the right side of history. And although Democrats have avoided mentioning impeachment as they run for the various offices up for grabs in November, it will be very much on the minds of voters on both sides of the great Trump divide. And even some voters on the Trump side have now seen a jury convict Trump's ex-lawyer in the same hour his key campaign manager was also being convicted of felonies. On Tuesday afternoon of this week, we witnessed what will likely be the second most miserable hour of the Trump presidency. And it appears the worst hour is yet to come. Tuesday morning, the Democratic National Committee reported that it had been hacked and that it had notified the FBI. It's since been discovered it was a false alarm, that the hack detected had been part of a security test. It illustrates that people are on edge because the attack is real. That same morning, Microsoft said it's detected and shut down websites set up in the past month by the same hackers and trolls who messed with our politics in 2016, backed by Russia's military intelligence unit, the GRU. The websites were designed to trick people into thinking they were the sites of established conservative think tanks, the ones typically critical of the Russian government, including the Hudson Institute and the International Republican Institute, which includes among its members John McCain, Mitt Romney, and General H.R. McMaster. The Russian operatives had even set up fake websites for the United States Senate. Quoting a digital defense professor at Harvard, this is another demonstration that the Russians aren't really pursuing partisan attacks. They're pursuing attacks they perceive in their own self-interest. And it isn't just Russia. While Facebook was deleting a few remaining Russian accounts set up by Kremlin trolls, it came across hundreds of other fake accounts set up by Iran. Iran was running a massive disinformation operation on Facebook, targeting hundreds of thousands of people worldwide. 
The fake accounts by trolls for the Iranian government also bought targeted ads on Facebook and used those ads and their own pages to organize events to attract unwitting Americans. Facebook also found these Iranian propaganda accounts date back seven years. Facebook also removed Iranian accounts from Instagram, which it owns. Twitter and YouTube say they have removed these same accounts. Welcome to a new kind of world war, a cyber world war. In addition to Iran, North Korea and China continue to hammer away at U.S. cybersecurity and U.S. politics as well. As does, of course, Russia, while the president fails to take the reins to stop Vladimir Putin's manipulation of the U.S. You should also know that next month in Siberia, Russia will put on the biggest show of military might it's displayed in nearly 40 years. Russia will conduct a massive set of war games in Siberia next month, and those games will be staged in collaboration with China. It's Russia's first military exercise on this scale since the height of the Cold War in 1981. Meanwhile, Russia is still attacking American politics. Despite his reputation for lies, exaggerations, and misinformation, Trump's lawyers are every bit as concerned about his tendency to blurt out the truth now and then, no matter how self-incriminating it might be. It happened when he told Lester Holt he'd planned to fire James Comey because the Russia investigation was on his mind. We were reporting one week ago today that Trump had just stripped former CIA Director John Brennan of his security clearance after Brennan had described Trump's actions as treasonous. The next day, Trump told the Wall Street Journal he had revoked Brennan's clearance because of the Russia investigation that began on Brennan's watch. Again, calling the probe a witch hunt, he added, and these people led it. So, said Trump, I think it's something that had to be done. Trump also made it clear he planned to strip the credentials of other past and present national security personnel who had been critical of him. It appeared to be a kind of revenge. Trump now has his eye on a current Justice Department official, Bruce Orr, whose wife used to work for the company that commissioned the Steele dossier about Trump's ties to Russia. Trump wants Orr stripped of his clearance, and he wants Attorney General Jeff Sessions to fire Bruce Orr. Many of the people on Trump's enemies list could serve as witnesses in the Mueller investigation, and denying them security clearance denies them access to documents to back up their testimony. It's been observed that Trump's warning that he would strip more clearances from more national security officials is to discourage them from talking in public and in grand jury testimony. Former CIA Director John Brennan, however, kept his word that he would not be silenced, calling Trump's claims of no collusion with Russia in the 2016 election, quote, hogwash. In addition to an op-ed piece for the New York Times, Brennan fought back on TV, fought back so hard it prompted fellow Trump critic, former National Intelligence Director James Clapper, to say on CNN that Brennan's rhetoric has, quote, become an issue in itself. John is subtle like a freight train, said Clapper, and he's going to say what's on his mind. Brennan also says he's pursuing a lawsuit to try to stop Trump from taking away any more security clearances for political reasons. Trump says he hopes Brennan does sue so that supposed documents damaging to Brennan can be released. The reaction was swift and forceful from every one of our ex-CIA directors since before Reagan, all 14 of them. They were joined by a dozen other former top-ranking officials, and then they were joined by 60 other past and present security officials. It seemed as though the entire intelligence community was rebelling against the president. 
One voice in particular stood out, that of retired Admiral William McRaven, who oversaw the Navy SEAL raid in Pakistan that killed Osama bin Laden. In an open letter to Trump in the New York Times, McRaven wrote, I would consider it an honor if you would revoke my security clearance as well so I can add my name to the list of men and women who have spoken up against your presidency. McRaven called John Brennan one of the finest public servants I have ever known. And McRaven continued, Through your actions, you have embarrassed us in the eyes of our children, humiliated us on the world stage, and worst of all, divided us as a nation. Between McRaven's comments and the Pentagon's postponement of Trump's military parade, it was as if the entire military community was rebelling against the president. And it was Admiral McRaven who was the first to invoke the name of Joseph McCarthy, whose unfounded accusations in the 1940s and 50s led to a kind of enemies list of Americans expected to have ties to communism. If you think for a moment, wrote the Admiral, that your McCarthy-era tactics will suppress the voices of criticism, you are sadly mistaken. Trump did not take these widespread criticisms well. Confronted by reporters, Trump blustered again about the disgusting rigged witch hunt and how those behind the investigation should be investigated. The papers are ready to revoke the clearances of other officials, including the aforementioned Bruce Orr at the Justice Department and former National Security Director James Clapper. And the Post writes that Trump wants to sign most, if not all, of those revocations but that Sarah Sanders and Trump's new deputy chief of staff have recommended they be signed and released only when distractions are needed in a negative news cycle. Three days after using his presidential powers to strip clearance from John Brennan, Trump was still badmouthing him on Twitter. He called Brennan a loudmouth partisan political hack. Brennan responded on TV saying he would reluctantly use the phrase drunk on power to describe this president and accused Trump of abusing his presidential powers. Democratic Virginia Senator Mark Warner has introduced an amendment that would, quote, block the president from punishing and intimidating his critics by arbitrarily revoking security clearances. Warner co-chairs the Senate Intelligence Committee, which is investigating links between the Trump campaign and Russia. Trump continued to tweet, calling the Mueller team thugs, discredited, and a national disgrace, with an exclamation point. Even some of the president's own aides told the Washington Post they thought Trump's actions and the stated reasons for them sounded too much like a disgraced former President Richard Nixon. And they were not alone. Citizens, journalists, and politicians were also invoking Nixon's name, what with this new list designed to, as John Dean had put it in the 1970s, screw our enemies. And now people were also comparing Trump to the now-despised Senator Joe McCarthy as well. Trump did not take these widespread criticisms well. And then this happened. The New York Times reported that the White House counsel, Don McCann, has and is cooperating with Robert Mueller's investigators and that he's told them things they would not have otherwise known. The White House counsel is the lawyer for the office of the U.S. presidency, not for the individual who occupies that office at the time. Trump may not have understood that principle, but it's one McGahn has said he holds sacred, and even as he supports Trump's conservative policies. The Times reports that McGahn's been interviewed three times, voluntarily, for a total of 30 hours, starting nine months ago. The paper says he's provided details of interest to the obstruction of justice investigation into the president. Some of what McGahn said may help prove Trump's innocence, but some of what McGahn told investigators may turn up the legal jeopardy on Trump. McGahn has knowledge of Trump's public and private comments about the firing of James Comey, about his efforts to fire Robert Mueller, about Trump's efforts to get Attorney General Jeff Sessions to take over the investigation, 
or anyone else who would be loyal to Trump. It was surprising to everyone in the legal profession that McGahn would cooperate so freely with the Mueller team. What McGahn is doing here is extremely rare. Lawyers usually claim attorney-client privilege, or in the case of a president, executive privilege. But McGahn knew he had to answer the questions because all privilege had been waived when the White House turned over all those documents, perhaps an error in that opening legal strategy. McGahn had cooperated at first because in the early days of the Mueller probe, Trump's lawyers had at the time advised that based on the belief their client was telling the truth when he told them there'd been no wrongdoing. McGahn reportedly argued at the time he was against this kind of transparency. At one point, however, McGahn got his own lawyer, both of them believing that McGahn was being set up by Trump to take the fall for any obstruction charges. So at around that time, McGahn decided to cooperate with prosecutors to save his own skin. Suddenly, McGahn found himself in the same situation as a White House counsel from the early 1970s, the aforementioned John Dean. The Times says McGahn told people he didn't want to end up like John Dean, who did go to prison for obstructing justice. The White House argued that Don McGahn had done the president no harm, that his talking with Mueller was part of Trump's insistence on transparency. But there are things the White House and Trump and his lawyers didn't know and still don't. Trump and his lawyers don't know what McGahn has said to investigators or how much. They began to realize that their cooperation and transparency was a possibly devastating mistake. They realized that McGahn hadn't been telling them about his conversations with the Mueller team and realized they had forgotten to ask another apparent blunder. And when Trump saw all of this, he again took to Twitter to slam what he called a New York Times piece. He says concluded that Don McGahn, quote, must be a John Dean type rat. In so doing, Trump had made reference to the Watergate scandal that brought down Richard Nixon. And perhaps because McCarthyism had been used to describe him over the past week, Trump also tweeted that, quote, Mueller and his gang make Joseph McCarthy look like a baby. Trump spent the weekend and for days since unsettled about what he does not know about what White House counsel Don McGahn might have said to Robert Mueller. This, according to sources at CNN that say Trump was unnerved by the revelation. The network says Trump aides have been nervous about Trump's possible reactions to any number of things, from the Manafort verdict to the Cohen guilty plea to McGahn talking to Mueller for 30 hours. And now Cohen has been subpoenaed to assist with another case, New York State's investigation of the purported charity known as the Trump Foundation. New York State prosecutors believe that if Cohen is willing to talk to try to reduce his prison sentence, he might be very helpful in that investigation. Cohen responded immediately and is already cooperating. Prosecutors allege the Trump Foundation used its donations for lawsuit settlements, an illegal campaign contribution, and an oversized oil portrait of Donald Trump, among other things. The lawsuit names Trump, Trump Jr., Eric, and Ivanka Trump. And even if it can't nail Trump, a sitting president, it can convict his children. And New York prosecutors say that whatever they find will be shared with the Federal Election Commission and the IRS which could lead to the long-awaited release of Trump's tax returns. And unlike federal charges, a state charge cannot be pardoned by a president. And Trump proudly repeated the dictatorial mantra that the media, quote, has become the enemy of the people. Trump did not take the widespread criticisms well when some 350 newspapers across the country published their individual editorials about Trump's claims of fake news. 
Trump responded, saying the press is, quote, pushing a political agenda or just plain trying to hurt people. If he said it once, Trump's called the news fake over 400 times since taking the oath of office. And that brings us back to the lies or occasional truths that spill out of Donald Trump and the reasons lawyers don't want Trump to be interviewed by Mueller. Trump's TV lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, was on Meet the Press Sunday saying the sit-down with Mueller is a perjury trap. Giuliani told NBC's Chuck Todd, when you tell me he should testify because he's going to tell the truth and he shouldn't worry, well, that's so silly because it's somebody's version of the truth, not the truth. Truth is truth, said Todd. No, said Giuliani. No, it isn't truth, adding truth isn't truth. Todd repeated the line, unable to keep a straight face. Mr. Mayor, he began, do you realize I think this is going to become a bad meme? Giuliani's truth isn't truth now joins Kellyanne Conway's alternative facts and Trump's what you're seeing is not what's happening statements. And with this administration's track record, truth isn't truth was not the best choice of words. Less than 24 hours later, Rudy tried to walk them back. A legal strategy mistake, perhaps, but then Giuliani is just Trump's TV lawyer. Back at the White House, Trump's expert lawyer is calling the shots, except when the shots are being called by Trump himself. So Trump set out to clean up Giuliani's mess. In an interview with the Reuters News Service, Trump said an interview with Mueller would be a perjury trap that because of the different versions of the story James Comey's firing, he could be charged with perjury just because the stories don't match. Even if I'm telling the truth, said Trump, that makes me a liar. That's not good. Even though that's not what defines perjury, the president's answer was far better than Giuliani's truth isn't truth. But then, of course, Trump added the Trump touch, saying he could take over the Mueller investigation anytime he wanted to. Quoting from that Reuters interview, I've decided to stay out. Now, I don't have to stay out, as you know. I can go in and I could do whatever. I could run it if I want, said Trump. Trump was saying he himself could lead up the investigation into the Russian attack and into whether his campaign had anything to do with it. And there is at least one other Nixon reference in this week's news. Hang on. It's about a lawyer's lawyer talking to another lawyer. The attorney for Trump's former personal lawyer has been in touch with the lawyer who represented former White House counsel John Dean during the Nixon administration. The lawyer client at the bottom of this stack is Michael Cohen, who needs all the legal counsel he can get. His lawyer, Lanny Davis, says he reached out to his old friend John Dean, an attorney who helped bring down the Nixon administration by revealing Nixon's enemies list. Dean says that's true. He did talk with Lanny Davis. And he says he'd also like to speak with Michael Cohen's criminal defense lawyer, Guy Petrillo. Prosecutors for Robert Mueller have told a federal judge their investigation might be a lot farther along had it not been for George Papadopoulos. Papadopoulos was one of Trump's proudly announced national security advisors during the campaign. And it was his brag to an Australian ambassador that the Russians were offering dirt on Hillary Clinton that launched the FBI's Russia investigation. And that's why Mueller's prosecutors are asking the judge to put Papadopoulos in prison for up to six months and make him pay a fine approaching $10,000. Papadopoulos pleaded guilty and agreed to cooperate with investigators, but then allegedly lied to them, allowing a key witness to flee the United States. They say what little truthful testimony Papadopoulos has provided hasn't been that helpful. While he told at least a dozen lies, according to investigators, and allowed that key witness to get away. Elliot Broidy 
opened up his Los Angeles area home two years ago for a luxurious fundraiser for Donald Trump. Trump was there, along with other wealthy people. Broidy had rounded up to rally behind the Trump campaign with their cash. It paid off as Trump got tens of millions of dollars for his campaign just from that one event, the kind of fundraiser he'd made fun of before that particular night. One donation was so big it legally had to be divided between the Trump campaign and the Republican National Committee. One supporter alone donated a half million in one fell swoop. Elliot Broidy's fundraiser also paid off for him as he quickly became the man in charge of fundraising at the Republican National Committee. At least it paid off for Broidy at first. Broidy had to quit his RNC job after reports he'd paid a former Playboy model over one and a half million dollars to keep quiet about their sexual affair. But now, the Justice Department is investigating whether Broidy had tried to sell his influence with the new president, offering to shift U.S. policy in exchange for tens of millions of dollars. Broidy allegedly asked a Malaysian businessman for $75 million. Broidy's lawyer says his client is innocent and that any evidence in the hands of investigators was fabricated by hackers. Hush money talk gets louder. Something else you should know about high court pick Brett Kavanaugh and Bob Seska's thoughts after this. Tell you what, go ahead and delete your Amazon links. Delete them from your favorites. Delete them from your bookmarks. Delete it on all your devices. And then go to buzzburbank.com. Click on the white Amazon link in the upper right corner, and you'll land on your very own Amazon page all over again. Bookmark that page. Make that page one of your favorites. Make that your link to Amazon shopping. I get a small commission from Amazon for every purchase you make after that, so it helps this free weekly report when you're shopping for home, school, church, or office. Now, if you'd prefer not to use my Amazon link, please support this free independent journalism through the PayPal donate button just beneath the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. Thank you. This has been an historic week, complete with a Tuesday that will likely be in history books. With more insight on what it all means is Salon.com's Bob Seska. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. Donald Trump is screwed, and I'm not sure he realizes it. His personal fixer, Michael Cohen, has become the John Dean of stupid Watergate, pleading guilty to four sets of charges, including serious federal campaign finance violations, each of which have considerably worsened the president's legal jeopardy. As part of Cohen's plea, the Manhattan attorney claimed Trump ordered him to make hush money payments to adult film actor Stormy Daniels and Playboy playmate Karen McDougal in order to deceive American voters in advance of the 2016 election. While Trump was busily focusing the attention of his red hats toward Mueller and the so-called rigged witch hunt, the prosecutors in the Southern District of New York and Michael Cohen were preparing to flank Trump to catch him off guard, looking the other way. And they succeeded. This week, Trump was officially flanked and summarily destroyed, with barely a tweet leading up to it. We can safely assume, too, that among the tens of thousands of documents turned over to prosecutors by Cohen and his team, there's plenty of documentation showing Trump's direct linkage to the payoffs, including ledgers, signed documents, deposit records, and yes, emails and text messages between Trump and Cohen. And based on the audio we've already heard, it's likewise safe to assume there are further recordings of Trump and Cohen discussing the payments. The existence of all this evidence completely nullifies Trump's argument that Cohen is inventing the story in order to get a sweet plea deal. 
Nevertheless, Trump went there anyway. In a tweet posted early Wednesday morning, Trump said, quote, I feel very badly for Paul Manafort and his wonderful family. Justice took a 12-year-old tax case, among other things, applied tremendous pressure on him, and, unlike Michael Cohen, he refused to break, make up stories in order to get a deal. Such respect for a brave man, unquote. As we see here, Trump's opening counterattack was to accuse Cohen of making up, quote, stories in order to get a deal, unquote. On top of that, the president of the United States chose to applaud another crook, Paul Manafort, for refusing to cooperate with the federal government, of which Trump is the illegitimate leader. Can you imagine Nixon applauding G. Gordon Liddy during the Watergate investigation? Then again, Nixon was a smarter brand of criminal than Trump, so there's that. Several hours after accusing Cohen of inventing stories to get Trump, Trump literally confessed to paying the hush money. Once again, Trump intentionally incriminated himself in a serious federal crime. It's the Lester Holt interview all over again. What you're about to hear is an astonishing piece of audio. Did you know about the payments? Uh, later on, I knew. Later on. But you have to understand, Ainsley, what he did... And they weren't taken out of campaign finance. That's a big thing. That's a much bigger thing. Did they come out of the campaign? They didn't come out of the campaign. They came from me. And I tweeted about it. You know, I put, I don't know if you know, but I tweeted uh, about the payments. But they didn't come out of campaign. First of all, regarding later on, we have an audio recording of Trump and Cohen discussing hush money before the payments were issued. So Trump is lying about that, and we have proof. Secondly, earlier Wednesday, Trump tweeted that Cohen is making up stories to get the best plea deal. Then, a few hours later, in the audio we just heard, Trump essentially confirmed to Fox News that Cohen's story is accurate. Not parts, all of it. No one accused Trump of paying Daniels and McDougal with campaign funds, and yet Trump protested a charge that hasn't been levied against him by any prosecutors or Cohen himself. Why? Next time you see one, ask a police detective what he or she usually concludes when a suspect volunteers an answer to a question that was never asked. They'll probably tell you the suspect is, at the very least, suspicious, if not guilty. Again, the question isn't whether Trump paid the women himself or if it was the Trump campaign. It's a felony either way. Regardless, Trump confessed on national television that Cohen's correct. They, Trump and Cohen, paid hush money to at least two adult film and print celebrities in order to preemptively kill any negative sex allegations in the weeks before the election. So Trump is guilty, right? He said it. Do Trump and his people seriously believe this ungainly, gibberishy reaction is going to help the president to escape accountability on this particular front? I can't imagine that Emmett Flood would allow Trump to go on TV and publicly confess to at least two federal crimes while simultaneously leaving himself open to further questions about other payments. And yet, there it is. By the way, it's a good thing the Fox News interviewer, Ainsley Earhart, doesn't appear to know a goddamn thing about campaign finance law. Hell, neither does the president, or else he'd know that secret payments made by a candidate in order to knowingly and willfully influence an election is a felony. To repeat, it doesn't matter whether it came from Trump's checking account or the campaign's war chest, all illegal. Once again, here we are. We know the truth. The parties have confessed. Michael Cohen pleaded guilty. There are copious documents proving Cohen's plea. Trump is guilty and admitted it on TV. 
The question now is whether the congressional Republicans will act according to their mandate and charge the president with articles of impeachment. I'm not holding my breath, but today it feels like the odds shifted a little closer to a bipartisan impeachment process, which it really needs to be in order to hold up as legit. Meanwhile, though, we should expect much more gaslighting and many more contradictory tall tales from this criminal president and his co-conspirators in the cover-up. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Get more of Bob at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Bob will have a fresh show this afternoon. I'll be back with him again this coming Tuesday. Omarosa Manigault Newman stayed in the news by releasing another tape, this one that has Lara Trump offering her 15 grand a month for a no-show job if Omarosa would sign a confidentiality agreement. It appears the former White House aide was being offered $180,000 a year in hush money. Finance papers obtained by ABC News seem to support Omarosa's story and that tape. And as indicated in my last report, that 15000 a month is a standard fee, according to these newly released documents. The records show that a number of former Trump aides are still getting paid, each getting fifteen grand a month. The president's former bodyguard, Keith Schiller, who was in charge of White House operations in the early days of the administration, now gets fifteen grand a month from the Republican National Committee not to work at the White House. All of them have the kinds of no-show jobs Omarosa had been offered— security, payroll, digital consulting, management consulting, and media consulting. They all carry the same restrictions, say nothing about what went on inside the White House or anything bad about Trump, his family, or their business, and the same for Vice President Mike Pence and his family. Ever. For the rest of their lives. Even if the payment stopped. At least a handful of former government employees have apparently signed these agreements and are getting fifteen grand a month to abide by it. The White House has no comment. Trump advisor Kellyanne Conway says non-disclosure agreements are common in the workplace. She may not be familiar with the law on that point. But even those who've signed the agreement may have a way out. People who worked for the taxpayers are required to honestly answer questions from lawmakers and other federal agencies, including those in the Justice Department. And they are protected, these government workers, by strong whistleblower laws should they decide they'd like to speak. It's become clear that Trump chose Brett Kavanaugh as his next Supreme Court nominee because Kavanaugh believes a sitting president should not be questioned, subpoenaed, or indicted. Kavanaugh says being a president is hard and important work and that a president should not be distracted from his duties. He believes that now. But Brett Kavanaugh did not believe these things when Bill Clinton was president. In 1998, Kavanaugh was working for independent counsel Ken Starr, who was investigating the cover-up of Clinton's sexual affair with White House intern Monica Lewinsky. In those days, Kavanaugh's conservative morals ruled his thoughts on executive power. Just as Trump is trying to avoid certain questions in the obstruction of justice probe, Clinton back then tried to avoid answering certain questions about his private moments with Ms. Lewinsky. But back then, Kavanaugh was having none of that. He argued that it was the independent counsel's duty to get the facts, including the most graphic details. Like Trump, Clinton politically attacked his investigators and Kavanaugh had had enough, so he wrote a memo. In that 1998 memo, Kavanaugh argued that Clinton did not deserve a break just because he was president. Parts of that memo have been revealed before. This week, the entire memo was made public after the Washington Post used the Freedom of Information Act to get it from the National Archives. The questions in Kavanaugh's memo are not for young ears, 
as he pulled no punches asking about specific sex acts. The questions include the following. If Monica Lewinsky says that on several occasions in the Oval Office area you used your fingers to stimulate her vagina and bring her to orgasm, would she be lying? If Monica Lewinsky says you inserted a cigar into her vagina while you were in the Oval Office area, would she be lying? If Monica Lewinsky says she gave you oral sex on nine occasions in the Oval Office area, would she be lying? And those are just three of the ten questions Brett Kavanaugh thought would be good ones to pose to President Clinton. In recent years, Kavanaugh's view has changed. The president, he says, should be left alone until after he leaves office. And Kavanaugh's view changed just in time for the arrival of a President Trump who clearly doesn't want to answer any questions about subjects far less personally embarrassing, subjects far more important to the well-being of this democracy. With nearly universal Republican support for his conservative views and the slack Kavanaugh now believes presidents should get, he was the perfect guy for Trump's latest Supreme Court pick, and he got here just in time. These days, Kavanaugh is more soft-spoken and chooses his words more carefully as he glad-hands senators in preparation for his confirmation process, which begins in less than two weeks. Tuesday was also a bad day for Trump in that yet another congressman who was an early supporter of his had been indicted on federal felony charges related to money. California Republican Congressman Duncan Hunter, the second lawmaker to endorse Trump for president, stands accused of illegally using campaign donations to pay bills, cover vacations, and trips for members of his family. And this all goes down while Hunter is running for re-election with a challenger who was only a few points behind him. And Hunter's wife, who had a charge card on that same campaign account, now faces all the same charges as her husband, Congressman. The second congressional endorser of Trump was now also the second to be charged with breaking the law. The first to endorse Trump was New York Republican Congressman Chris Collins, who was recently arrested for insider trading. The Trump Congressional Caucus is losing soldiers. It was indeed Trump's terrible Tuesday. We have increasingly witnessed the dramatic efforts of climate change on the severity of storms and temperatures, vanishing coastlines, and its effect on humans and animals, land and sea. In the face of that, the Trump administration has now proposed that we turn what has been federal control of clean air regulations over to the individual states. It means that a state that relies on the fossil fuel industry for its economy can pollute more if it wishes while states downwind fight for cleaner air. It would make coal a more competitive energy source, something coal state voters may keep in mind this November. Power plants that need upgrades under the existing federal rules, they would get a break under the Trump plan if their state was willing to lower its standards. Environmentalists say this risks reversing the progress made in reducing carbon emissions across these United States. They say Trump's rollback would lead to an additional 1,400 American deaths each year from air pollution, according to the EPA's own numbers. And lowering standards runs counter to the Paris Climate Accord, which the U.S. signed only to withdraw on orders from Trump. Earlier this month, the Trump administration relaxed the fuel efficiency rules that were also put into place by the Obama administration to adhere to that Paris Accord. Quoting Obama's chief air protector at the EPA, Janet McCabe, I don't know how many times people need to hear we're having the warmest summer on record or how many storms people need to see. This is no fooling, says McCabe. Now, meet William Wareham. 
He now has her old job. Wareham is now in charge of clean air at Trump's EPA, just as Janet McCabe had been for Obama. Among the voices the fossil fuel industry has in the Trump government, one of the most shocking is also one of the most influential. William Wareham served for nearly 10 years as a corporate lawyer for chemical plants, oil refineries, and coal-burning power plants. It was his job in that decade to fight the EPA's clean air rules. It is now his job to uphold those rules. Really? That's like putting a private education advocate in charge of public education or making a former Texas governor the head of the energy department. A coal industry lawyer will now protect your lungs from air pollution and protect the planet. Or not. The allegedly corrupt Scott Pruitt may be gone, but the Trump anti-environmental agenda goes forward with virtually no interruption. In a related and surprising development, the Australian government is also backing down from its own plans for fighting climate change. Australia will no longer require a 26% reduction in its greenhouse gas emissions by the year 2030. The Prime Minister says he had to abandon the plan when it became clear it would not pass the Australian Parliament. It was a week ago today that we reported the twisted details of a grand jury's report on the sexual abuse of children by Catholic priests in Pennsylvania. Later that day, the Vatican responded, calling the behavior of priests and the cover-ups by bishops, quote, criminal and morally reprehensible. The church said it felt shame and sorrow that more than a thousand specific children were abused by more than 300 specific priests just in parts of Pennsylvania, just in that one state. The actual number of victims could be in the thousands, and in fact, over 300 phone calls came into the Pennsylvania Attorney General's office the day of this announcement from other people who wanted to report cases of abuse. The Vatican, in its statement, called for accountability and assured the faithful that the Pope is on their side. When Pope Francis himself addressed the subject a few days later, he called the abuses atrocities. We showed no care for the little ones, he said, adding, we abandoned them. In an unprecedented letter to all Catholics, published in seven languages and distributed worldwide, the Pope said no effort must be spared to prevent future cover-ups. But he wasn't specific. He didn't announce a plan. So were the responses from the Vatican and the Pope enough? Although many Catholic groups have criticized the Church's response to this massive scandal, change does now seem more likely the Catholic Church has to change, said a woman in Miami. They have to let their priest marry to have a family, said the 77-year-old, adding, humans need sex. It also appears the church will survive. I'm not coming to church for a priest, said one New Yorker, who added, I'm coming because in my heart there's something else. But it was a painful Sunday, and it's been a painful week for all Catholics. Just yesterday, we learned that a Pottsville, Pennsylvania priest, not previously named in this scandal, has now been charged with indecent assault and corruption of a teenaged girl. He reportedly sent the 17-year-old nude photos of himself on Snapchat, this priest. He now faces nine years in prison. In the words of a man attending Mass at the Mother Church of the Pittsburgh Diocese, right now it's really hard to be a Catholic. As the Pope himself alluded, it's even harder to be a victim. In the past week, a federal judge in California issued a temporary restraining order on the deporting of families that were separated under Trump's zero-tolerance policy. The judge says his order allows children in those families to ask for asylum in the U.S., and it keeps parents from having to choose 
between being deported without their kids or taking the kids with them back to the country they had fled in fear. The order also means those families will remain in detention centers while all the parties involved talk about how families torn asunder by Trump's policy can be instead kept together. In Georgia, a man's been arrested for shooting to death another man over a parking space. It happened in a Walmart parking lot. A 49-year-old immigrant from Bosnia allegedly shot to death by 27-year-old Troy Dennis Hunt. Other people outside the store ran for cover, fearing another mass shooting. Meanwhile, back in Washington, Trump Homeland Security Secretary Christian Nielsen was at a meeting on school safety being conducted by Trump Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. In that meeting, Christian Nielsen gave her support to a proposal called School Age Trauma Training. The idea is to teach high school students basic paramedic skills to prepare them for future mass shootings. As for DeVos, she's considering a plan to let schools use federal academic money to buy guns for the teachers. It was just last week that Nebraska carried out its first criminal execution in 21 years. It was a surprising turn just three years after the state's lawmakers had voted to abolish capital punishment. It was also against the odds since the company that makes two of the drugs in Nebraska's four drug injections had sued the state to try to stop it. The condemned man said he was guilty and didn't want anyone to stop the execution, but he urged capital punishment opponents to keep speaking. For those on death row, he says are innocent. But the ironic news to come out of this major execution story out of Nebraska is the use of fentanyl in the fatal cocktail this time. Nebraska had chosen to use a drug that law enforcement's been trying to get off the streets as it kills Americans every day in an epidemic of overdoses at the rate of 72,000 people a year. It would take two dozen 9-11s to kill that many people. It's more than die in car wrecks each year. And then came the mass overdose in New Haven, Connecticut, in the shadow of Yale University. The drug of choice here was K2, sometimes known as spice or synthetic marijuana, despite being dangerously different. And this batch had apparently been laced with an opioid, possibly fentanyl. Paramedics arrived at a park to find people who were barely conscious, and then reports came in from around the city of similar overdoses. The calls came in all day in New Haven, Connecticut. It was like what had happened in New York two years ago when 130 people OD'd on K2 in a three-day period. In Chicago yesterday, one hospital alone treated 10 overdoses in a two-hour period. A new cancer treatment appears to be extending the lives of cancer patients, even those with advanced ovarian or lung cancers. Lives have been extended by nearly six months in early test cases. The results have been so encouraging, a second round of testing has begun, even as the first round is still wrapping up. Aretha Franklin's unfinished business. This beer tastes like weed and a ban on hot sex. In the third and final segment, up next. Don't you think it's time to stop spending restless nights flipping and reshaping your pillow to try to get cool and dry? You can wake up as cool as the other side of the pillow. Sleep on a hollow pillow. The hollow pillow stays cool while giving your head, neck, and shoulders perfect support all night long, night after night. Now, a lot of us have spent good money on good mattresses but still haven't found the right pillow. Fiber fills are hot and humid. They collapse under your weight. They don't give you a full night's support you need for good posture and good sleep, and you have to keep replacing them. 
A memory foam pillow gives support, but maybe not quite the shape that's right for you. It doesn't breathe, so it gets hot and gives off chemical gases you probably shouldn't spend a third of your life inhaling. Hollow pillows are filled with natural buckwheat hulls that don't give off gases and don't collapse. The buckwheat's grown and milled by American farmers before the hulls go into hollows, pre-shrunken, certified organic, unbleached cotton tool casing. And all of that's done right here in the U.S. Hollow pillows breathe and stay cool, and most importantly, conform perfectly to your head, neck, and shoulders for a truly restful night's sleep. And you can adjust the fullness of the hollow pillow by removing or adding more hulls through the zipper that's covered for comfort. I am so happy with mine after well over a year, I am proud to give it my personal endorsement. My cat likes it too. And I'm proud that a percentage of the profits are donated to the Nature Conservancy. Hullo pillows are available in three sizes, small, standard, and king. And right now, depending on the size, you can save up to 20 bucks on each additional pillow with fast, free shipping. But you can only get that deal by going to hullopillow.com slash buzz. That's hullopillow.com slash buzz. Thank you for supporting this brilliant company and this show at hullopillow.com slash buzz. The CEOs of companies have always made more money than their employees, and that makes sense. What hasn't made sense is the size of the gap between what the CEOs make and what the rest of us make. And their paychecks grew by another 18% in the past year, while workers' salaries increased by less than 1%. CEOs now make 312 times more money than the average worker, based on a study of executives at 350 U.S. companies. Their average pay is nearly $19 million a year, but that includes things employees usually don't get, bonuses, restricted stock grants, long-term incentive payouts, and stock options. In these things lies the difference and the reason for their very good year. CEO pay has risen by 1,000% since 1978. Worker salaries have risen in that same period of time by a comparatively dismal 11%. The authors of this annual report recommend more taxes on the rich and corporations and a cap on CEO compensation. Now here is the most interesting stock market story you'll ever hear. Corona may be the first beer company to sell one containing cannabis. Investments in the legal cannabis industry are skyrocketing ever since the company that makes Corona increased its own investment in a Canadian cannabis company called Canopy Growth. Corona boosted its investment in cannabis by an additional $4 billion. The day of the announcement, stock in a rival company known as the Kronos Group went up by 11% and by 40% in just that week. Other smaller cannabis companies are seeing their value rise as well. There's already talk of mergers. For now, these companies don't have their eyes on the U.S. They are eyeing Canada, where nationwide legal recreational marijuana sales begin October 17th, just in time for the Boxing Day shopping season. Don't say Mormon, please. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints says it will stop calling itself the Mormon Church or even LDS. And it's asking the rest of us, starting with news organizations, to do the same. The church's president says the Jesus part needs to be in there. The church says the only time it's okay to say Mormon is when referring to either the Mormon trail or the Book of Mormon. 
A 22-year-old woman on a Spirit Airlines red eye out of Vegas was asleep, resting her head on the window. But she was awakened as she was penetrated by a finger of the man sitting in the middle seat. Her pants were unbuttoned, as was her blouse. The man's wife was right next to him in the aisle seat. The assaulted woman had to climb over them both to get to the back of the plane. The FBI recommends using the call button. There were 63 reported sexual assaults on planes last year, nearly double the figure from three years earlier. Many of the victims are flight attendants, male and female. Now convicted of sexual abuse, the man in this case faces up to life in prison since he was here on a work visa from India. $80 million. $80 million. That's how much money Aretha Franklin left behind in her estate. What Aretha didn't leave behind was any kind of a will that $80 million will be tied up in probate for a while. Italian actress and director Asia Argento is flatly denying allegations being investigated by police that she sexually assaulted a 17-year-old actor when she was 37. That's news because Argento's been a leading voice in the Me Too movement, being one of the first to publicly accuse then-movie producer Harvey Weinstein of rape. Actor Jimmy Bennett says Argento invited him up to her room, served him alcohol, kissed him, and then initiated sex. Bennett, who had just played Argento's son in a movie, says he was traumatized and that it has hurt his career. There are verified photos of the two of them in bed together at those ages. The Los Angeles District Attorney's Office is investigating new allegations of sexual assault by actor Kevin Spacey. The case was referred to them by the Los Angeles County Sheriff. The last movie made by Kevin Spacey before a sex scandal brought him down had the worst opening ever in North American theaters this week. Of any movie ever, on opening night, Spacey's last movie made $126. Not million, not thousand, $126. A far cry from the $20 million his film Baby Driver took in on its opening weekend. This weekend, Spacey's last movie opens in L.A. and New York and may still not even make it to $1,000. Crazy Rich Asians was the most popular movie in the U.S. and Canada this week. CRA opened with over $25 million in ticket sales. The Meg fell to second place in its second week with another $21 million. For all the movies, previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please click through the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. And man, are her arms tired. It happens usually with a tragic end. A British woman fell off a cruise ship along the coast of Croatia on Saturday night and wasn't rescued until Sunday morning. She spent the night in the water, treading water, for 10 hours. 46 years old. Kay Longstaff was found not far from the Norwegian Star cruise ship and, quoting her, lucky to be alive. In Colombia, people were being advised not to have sex during the month-long heat wave, at least not during the daylight hours. Colombian health officials were warning a populace mostly without air conditioning that having that kind of hot sex can dehydrate a person. Nooners are out of the question, they say, since that's the hottest part of the day. However, says the government, and I quote, if you have good air conditioning, there's no problem. In Mesa, Arizona, they're wondering if there's something in the water in the ICU at the Banner Desert Medical Center in Mesa. Nurses at that particular department of that particular facility 
keep turning up pregnant. According to one nurse, one after another after another. Now, 16, count them, 16 nurses from the ICU in that one hospital are expecting babies between October and January. Management's already expecting a rash of absences, but quoting one hospital official, we've been planning for this. He was not glad to see you. That was a python in his pants. Police in Florence, South Carolina, say a man stole a red-tailed boa constrictor from a pet store by shoving the snake down his pants. There's video, of course, from the security camera. It's a felony case, so police are now looking for the man in his late 30s. He may be easy to spot. There are plenty of police cases involving the theft of a trailer full of merchandise of some kind or another. This one's a little different. In Georgia, the Fayette County Sheriff's Office is investigating the theft of a trailer and the $98,000 worth of merchandise that was inside when that trailer vanished from a Chevron station. It was $98,000 worth of noodles. Ramen noodles, the kind that have kept millions of college students from starvation. If you see 300,000 packets of ramen laying around somewhere, please notify the Fayette County Sheriff's Office in Georgia. More tears were shed over spilled milk when a milk truck swerved off I-64 in Fayette County, Kentucky. Yes, Kentucky also has a Fayette County. The driver will be okay. Cartons of milk were strewn everywhere. Most of the spilled milk ran into a ditch. The tears have dried up in Iowa, where a milk tanker crashed on I-34 earlier this summer, spilling more than 3,000 gallons of loose milk. And in California, drivers had to pull off the 101 to pull the nails out of their tires. The afternoon commute was getting underway when a case of nails escaped from a truck and scattered across the two left lanes. They had a different kind of roadway incident over the weekend in China where traffic cameras captured a man parking his car on the shoulder and then releasing 60 or 70 pigeons from his car. The man told police he had been keeping the pigeons but decided to set them free. He said he chose the highway because it was a nice open space. He's been fined $29 and for parking in the emergency lane to release his pigeons, six points off his license. Finally, a couple of guys who deliver beer in St. Paul, Minnesota, had taken a different route than usual Wednesday morning. They don't usually cross the bridge over I-94, but for some reason on that morning, they did. After their first delivery to a sports bar, they spotted a man on the ledge of that bridge. The driver stopped the truck to see if he was all right. He said he was there to take his own life. The driver called 911. They knew it would take a while for emergency responders to arrive, so... One of the drivers says he channeled Denzel Washington from the movie Inside Man. In that movie, Washington plays a hostage negotiator. All right, said the driver, I got to be the negotiator. And he kept the would-be jumper occupied with questions about him and his family. And the two of them talked about how they both grew up in tough neighborhoods. And there were other engaging questions. Would you like something to eat? Do you need money? Do you want to drink with me? The beer delivery guy had struck gold. A beer, asked the driver. Maybe, answered the man on the ledge. All the man had to do to get the 12-pack that he was being offered was to carefully climb down from the ledge, which he did. It was the beer that saved a man's life Wednesday morning in St. Paul. Police told driver Kwame Anderson, nice job. His employer said so, too, on Facebook. Quoting St. Paul police, beer has been bringing people together for a long, long time today in a life-saving way. 
The police spokesman also said, we all learned a valuable lesson today. Always keep beer handy. (laughs) I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.